Right, snake. Back once again. I keep wanting to add for the Renegade Master D4 Damager, part of the people, but I won't because I'm not really sure how many people will get it. But okay, quick Twitter update. We now have just over 50 followers. Also, I have two shoutouts to do here, Courtney. The first is to a lovely lady called Jenny Brennan, who did some digging for us and found a number of records of Great Uncle James. So, I mean, well happy with that. She's related to Agnew Crow, so it's kind of cool how that's all slotted in together, which I just think that's awesome. Also, remember I got a bit too excited about having an American listener? Well, I got a message from a lady called Gertrude Behan, who's only bloody listening in sunny bloody Brisbane in bloody Australia. So I'll channel my inner chopper and say, Hello, hello, to Gertrude. And I really hope you've seen that, that'll be, you know, really weird. Well, she lives uh, She lives over 10,000 miles away. If you want that quantified, it's it's really, really far away. And I got to wondering, you know, if there's anyone further away, you know, like New Zealand or Antarctica, or, or even just listening in like a weird or wacky place, and if so, let us know. Anyway, that's probably enough of an intro for me, so here's episode 009 of the Irreverent History of Ulster. From Bruce to Fried Goose, Hi Ed got titty bread. Learn of the past, but answers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. Yeah, that's a reference to Edward de Bruce or Edward Bruce. Depending who you ask, I mean, not that anyone really knows who he is. Most people correct me and say, mm, I think you mean Robert. And I retort with a completely, it's really hard not to be soft, right? Just, who? That bastard who betrayed Wild Willie Wallace in Mel Gibson's highly acclaimed and historically accurate portrayal of Scotland around the early 14th century known as Braveheart. And they have this sort of like real smug kind of nodding before I say, mm, no, not him. Actually, his wee bro, a man called Ed. He invaded Ireland not long after helping his brother to that victory over the English at the Battle of Bannockburn. And I'm sure you know it, especially if you have any Scottish which I mean, you just really need one. It's their, like, their nation's default retort to any mention of English superiority, ever. See the English pumped just at the rugby at Murrayfield the weekend? Aye, but we hammered them at Bannockburn. Uh, see the English have stolen all your oil from the North Sea? Uh, aye, but we spanked them in the fields of Bannockburn. Uh, see the English give you a chance of freedom, but you didn't take it. <laughs> Bannockburn. But you get the point. So on, so on. Blah, blah, blah. I'm not laboured anymore. But it was 11 months after that battle that Edward Bruce landed in Ireland's north coast with 5,000 men, stating that it was my island, and he was looking to name himself King. If you want to hear more, grab a seat, strap in, and let's get cracking. So what led Ed to thinking he could be King of all Ireland? And we should call him Ed from now on, as there's a few other Edwards in the story, so it's just to stop the confusion. But Ed, that's the one we're talking about, was Anglo-Norman after all, wasn't he? So what's he doing in Ireland, thinking he can take over? Well, the name Bruce descended from Bree in Normandy, and it seemed he travelled with the forces of William the Conqueror to England. So if you've listened to the previous shows, you might remember that he's part Viking. But fear not, Gaelic listeners, his ma was the Lady of Carrick uh, on the west coast of Scotland, and she in turn was related to many Irish kings, yep. Obviously the feckin' nails are in there. They always have a finger in every pie, don't they? That relationship was through a princess of Leinster, named Aoife McMurrah, who lived a few hundred years previous. Also, it said he had connections to Brian Baru, who needs no introduction, and even to Olaf Curran, the old Viking who was bested by Mol Shocknell at the Battle of Tara. So why, skipping to the end of the whole generation thing, he was a bit of a mongrel, but he could trace part of his ancestry to Ireland. And many believe he spent much of his youth there, heady summers basking under Ulster's overcast skies. But before we move on, I've got a quick story for you, and that's that Robert Bruce may have been the result of a rape. But I bet it's not what you think. His mum, 
the aforementioned Lady of Carrick. She wasn't raped. No, in a Jeremy Beadle-esque ruse, she actually lured Bruce's dad into a trap, kidnapped him, took him to a tower and imprisoned him for three days where she evidently had her wicked way with him. As nine months or so later, Robert Bruce took his first breath. Anyway, we need a bit more context here. Why Willie Wallace had just died. It was 1305 and the race for the seat of the King of Scotland was heating up. There were two main contenders. Robert Bruce and a man called John Comyn. He was an open ally of England, which didn't go down too well with many, but both men had a seemingly legitimate claim, although only one was a real ruthless bastard. History can't really, you know, conclusively state what happens, but after the meeting in Greyfriars Church in Dumfries, Robert whipped out a blade and stabbed John in the face, killing him at the altar. Far from being outraged, the Scottish clergy actually named him King of Scotland. He was crowned at Scone, or schoon, but I prefer scone because that's how it's spelled, and I can detect the bile rising in the mouths of anyone from, you know, northern Britain. But Edward Longshanks, the King of England, who you may know as Mr. Prima Nocta, you know, the hammer of the Scots, took exception to this kind of growing thorn in his side, and he dispatched an army to tan Robert's hide, and tan it they bloody well did, as Robert's army was routed at the Battle of Methane, and he did a runner. Now, his wife and children weren't so lucky, because they got caught and many of his family were captured too, and some were murdered, which was nice, but others were just put to display in boxes. You know, like a macabre kind of mannequins, you know, posing as that summer's must-have collection of famine, pestilence and sorrow. Robert, possibly because he had no choice, or maybe just because he didn't really give a shit about anyone else, went into hiding in Rathen Island, somewhere off the shores of Ulster, where he met a spider who toiled in a web, fighting against all the odds, and this kind of allegory would, would change his life forever. While there, he wrote a letter to the Irish clans asking for their support, but we'll get back to that in a second, as I suppose it's now a good time to talk about the situation in Ireland. After the reign of Brian Baru around the turn of the millennium, and all the High King squabbling that followed, it was the Normans who swept in and took over. The Pope himself, loyal to God above all else, except maybe gold and avarice, let's be honest, had sent a notorious bull laudabilitor, declaring that all of Ireland was to fall under the control of Henry II and his successors for, uh, yeah, eternity. Which is cool. I don't know. Why not? Like, you know, screw what the people in the island think. Henry, taking full advantage, just sort of like, you know, popped over the sea to the Emerald Isle, and most of the tribes kind of just conceded immediately. With the exception of, can you guess? Yes. <sighs> most of the guys in Ulster. No bloody troublemakers are, I tell you that. You know, the Canalone and the Canal Connell, branches of those pesky O'Neills, you know, they just would not submit. A Norman knight, John de Corsi, or JDC, was dispatched to deal with Ulster, and he built a vast array of early wooden castles to kind of house his troops in, and he even built one of stone at Carrickfergus, so in times of trouble he could retreat there, and he'd be pretty much safe as the rock beat the native scissors. But as is the form, with powerful men, he soon got a little big for his boots, and the Norman was pitted against Norman with JDC getting got by HDL or Hugh Lacey. Also, was still fairly independent, you know, especially in the West, and the Canal Owen and Canal Connell joined in a revolt by Brian O'Neill, who got whacked at Downpatrick, and his head was put in a box and sent first class to England. Oh, the king must have laughed when he received that box. What could it be? New trainers, a PS4? Oh, no, it's the head of some old bastard I've never met. Anyway, Walter de Berg was next to have a go at kind of pacifying Ulster and Ireland, and he got the king's favour by turning Gaul against Gaul. And it was his family that created the yellow, red hand of Ulster flag. His son was Richard de Berg, a man who would become known as the Red Earl. 
but for reasons I can't find out, I suspect leaning on all my historical training, that it was either because he either loved butchering people, or that it was Judy's adoption of the red hands as his family symbol, or because maybe he was a ginger. Now, all are some eyes, but absolutely no evidence whatsoever. But if you know, then hook a brother up. I mean, you can email me at reverendhistory at gmail.com or Twitter is a reverend, is a revhist, sorry, I-R-R-E-V-H-A-S-T, or Facebook or whatever. Hold your peace, your choice. But the Red Earl, right, whose other nickname may or may not have been Fanta, had a daughter called Elizabeth. And she was none other than the wife of Robert de Bruce. Robert had sent her to live under the protection of his brother Nigel. They were betrayed by a blacksmith who had been promised all the gold he could carry to help the English capture Isle Lizzie. So the blacksmith lit a fire at their castle, which led to her eventual capture. And Edward Longshanks, brilliant guy, was so enamoured by this treachery from the blacksmith that he gave him a huge pot of gold. However, he gave it to him in molten form and actually poured it down the traitor's throat, which that's just lovely. Edward you know, the hammer of the Scots, finally perished in July 1307, when old age succeeded where his enemies had failed. And under the throne went the arse of his son, who proved to be a bit more big pink tickly foam mallet's mallet than a hammer. So, to recap, Longshanks was dead, and Robert Bruce was still hiding in a cave. Bored by like the lack of TV reception or whatever, he took to writing letters, and one such letter was to his friends, friends, as he called them, the Irish kings. He sought the appeal to their heritage, stating that they both had, both they and the Scots had, stemmed from one seed of birth, and share, you know, a common language and common customs. To conclude the letter, he, he offered a permanent alliance against the hated English, you know, who obviously assumed their usual historical mantle of both conquerors and complete bastards. It takes no imagination to evoke, you know, the feelings of the hatred that many of the Irish felt towards their Anglo lords. I mean, men occupying their lands and treating them like dirt, even though they're working the fields. These desperate men may have seen Robert as a way out, you know, someone of their ilk, fighting against, against repression, against tyranny. A way to, like, metaphorically remove themselves from underneath, you know, England's boot heels. Boosted by words of support from the Irish clans and of the news of, of Longshanks' death, Robert, it is claimed, burst out of his bad cave with the proclamation that he feared the dead king's bones more than his living heir. And off he went to fight Edward II. On the 24th of June 1314, Robert, using an army, you know, heavily comprised of farmers with pitchforks, and with Ed by his side, yep, we haven't forgotten about our eponymous hero here, but he's just been kind of chilling up until this point, but with Ed by his side, they bested the greatest army assembled in Europe up to that point. And here he enters. Ed the Bruce, taking many veterans from that battle and sailing across the Irish Sea to, you know, slightly arrogantly declare himself the King of Ireland. But why? There's many theories to this, and maybe they all have their place, but we have three possible answers that I sort of think. Number one, the Irish kings were all kind of please, 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 you know, and they sensed this kind of, kind of Celtic conscience was growing. You know, as we mentioned earlier, the O'Neills may have asked them over, hoping the Bruces could do in Ireland what they had done in Bannockburn. And as the Irish had heavily colonised Scotland in the early years of AD, even given their country their name, there was a common ancestry. I mean, he was right about that, and the virtues of which were extolled in Robert's letter. And the rebellion was common in Scotland, Ireland and Wales, which were heavily Celtic kingdoms. And there was a whisper that now was the time. New ideas were taking root. A kind of nationalism of sorts. Now, there's a word that will have some listeners purring and others maybe puking a bit. 
too. Ed just wanted to be king. He was ambitious, you know, cut from the same cloth as his brother, but younger, so without the same inheritance, the same rights. So maybe he just wanted the next best thing, you know, kingdom of his own. I seem as like a kind of a wannabe Marky Mark, you know, with his veterans then being the funky bunch. He saw Robert's big brother, Donnie Wahlberg, you know, at the height of his new kids in the block famer, NKOTB, which is a reference I can explain no one as being the, the perks of having a teenage sister in the early 90s, who was complete with perm and shells, it may I add. And we have photos to prove that. Yes, we do, Julie. And when Ed envisioned the future, did he see himself as Mark Wahlberg? You know, one of the world's leading actors, and having totally eclipsed his brother's fame. But he had to start somewhere. So while Marky Mark danced in his pants for Calvin Klein commercials, Ed headed the Ireland to assert control of his new dominion. 3. The Bruce's wanted to stem the flow of Irishmen to England, as crazy as it maybe seems in today's like highly moralistic society. You know, many Irishmen, you know, they weren't content with the poor offering of wages at home, and they sought to sell their killing skills to the highest bidder. And do you know who that highest bidder was more times than not? Only the English. And by landing in Ireland, selling the romantic dream of free Ireland, the Bruce's may have hoped that they could cut off this easy supply. Personally, I'd say there's a measure of all three of those in the mix, like a heady potion that would see the Scots kind of return to the land of their forefathers. Anyway, Ed took a short hop across the sea from Ayrshire and landed in Larne, just north of Carrickfergus, and at that time it was known as Wolfric's Ford, which harps back to his Viking heritage. Despite Ed's invasion causing the whole of Ireland to tremble, the Anglo-Irish were a little taken aback by events, a feeling I'd liken to, to going home after a hard day at work and finding some stranger making themselves comfortable in your favourite seat, you know, and watching the rest of the movie you've been too tired to finish the night before. Well, the Red Earl felt similar. He'd been chilling with some hoes in a hot tub at one of his estates in Connaught, and he must have spat out of his shabbly when news reached him of the invasion, especially as at its head was none other than his son-in-law's brother. But you don't get to stay top dog if you don't crack the whip every so often. So he was soon atop his trusty steed, heading northeast, and making plans to, to rid Ulster of those unwelcome guests. Unbeknownst to him, however, a battle had already begun. Sir Thomas de Mandeville had called in every favour he could to cobble together a force to repel Ed's army. But would you want to go up against the base of Bannockburn? The men that had looked England's thundering heavy horse right in the eye and survived? <laughs> Me neither. And that fear factor may or may not have been weighing on the hearts of de Mandeville's men, but not for long, as they were soon strewn across the battlefield. John Barber, in his poem The Bruce, states, uh, In the battle were taken or slain the whole flower of Ulster, which kind of suggests it was a full-on demolition job by the Scots. They then marched to Carrickfergus, and while Belfast is the current capital, back then Carrickfergus and its huge stone castle that watched over the Irish Sea was of utmost importance. The town was taken quickly, but the castle would take a little longer, over 15 odd months longer, as in his rush to catch the ferry at Stranraer, Robert had neglected to pack his siege engines. The Mandeville demolished he then headed to Dundalk to capture another port. On his way through the Moiré Pass, which is the throughway of the land that connects that kind of Ulster to Leinster, or the Gap of the North, the sound of Game of Thrones, those of the Gaelic Irish that did not support his cause launched an ambush, but were driven back by the fierce Scots warriors. Okay, hold on one second here. Ulster's clans were divided? Yeah, shocking, I know. But believe it or not, in yesteryear, the clans had many different ideas and ideals and were just not able to bond together to form a, a cohesive ruling structure. We're just so lucky that in today's modern province, there's no such partisan dividing lines. Pfft, 
By the 29th of June, Ed had captured Dundalk, and as a merry surprise to complement the taking of the town, they also liberated a big merchant ship full of wine. Now, I'm not a soldier, you can probably tell, but I don't think there's a more fitting way to end a victory than getting wildly drunk and burning a town to the ground. Yeah, slaughtering anybody who protested, and, you know, anybody that doesn't either. Why not? You're just having a laugh, aren't you? You've got the taste of blood in your lips, so what else do you do? Well, Ed's men were no different. They massacred both the Anglo-Irish and the Gaelic alike. Barber tells that the streets were slick with the blood of the slain, which, if true, wouldn't really endear Ed either side of the divides of Irish society, would it? However, it was not to be dwelt on as the Red Earl came clip-clopping over the hill and chased Ed up to Coleraine. That's a town on the north coast of Ulster. Bad weather and an even worse harvest were starting to bite and Ed had to rely on his Gaelic allies. Now the Red Earl had been embarrassed and enfeebled by the defection of one of his major allies, Phelan O'Connor, who'd come back to Connop to sort out a few inter-clan issues which basically wanted to go and kill people. So they retreated to a town near Ballymena, confusingly called Connor, and it was there that the Red Earl was absolutely battered on the 10th of September 1315. The field was wholly covered by bones and arms and dead men, and soon grew wet with blood. The Red Earl's forces were wiped out, and the sight was dreadful. Now, I surmise that dreadful has maybe lost its impact a little bit over time here. You know, oh, my daughter fell over and cut her knee. Oh, that's dreadful. Truly dreadful. But back in the day, I think it had much more severe connotations, so we shouldn't underestimate the nature of the defeat. It was an absolute pasting. In the aftermath of this battle, the Battle of Connor, is that Ed was effectively master of all Ulster. But that's not going to do him. He wants way more. Barber claims that uh, Ed was bolder than a leopard and had no desire for peace. And his actions would support this, would support his wish to rule, to rule everything. It's debated just where he, he was crowned, but at some point in 1315, the Irish say that the Ulsterman consented to his being proclaimed the King of all Ireland, and all the Gaels of Ireland agreed to grant him lordship, and they called him the King of Ireland. And after a few months of like handbags and hair pulling, and supplies kind of dwindling off, Ed decided to chill a little before his next campaign. Over the water in Scotland, Robert de Bruce having no real English army to kind of fight back, threaten numerous northern English towns with attack, but instead of engaging in armed conflict, they just paid him to go away. And it may be that a lot of this money was siphoned off towards Ed, as Robert also sent him further veterans to fight in the Irish campaign. And that's maybe a little glimpse into Robert's head. It seems like he wants to keep the campaign going, but to what end? Does he just want to keep his brother occupied? Possibly. But whatever the reason, Ed was grateful for the money grateful for the veterans, and he put them to use in his next campaign. It was two months later, in the midst of winter, his forces defeated uh, Roger Mortimer, the Lord of Trim, <coughs> the very place where Maul Shecknell's statue is, and also, mildly ironically, also the location of the castle where the execution of Wild Willie Wallace was shot for Braveheart. He ploughed onto Ard's skull in Mid-Ireland, and again whopped the Anglo-Irish, he was burning and looting all the way. It was after these victories that some of the Gaelic Irish started to mobilise the aside, sensing the balance of power swinging towards the Scots. Others still refrained, sickened by by his difficulty to understand policies of scorched earth and indiscriminate slaughter. I mean, they're hardly the backbone of a successful hearts and minds policy, are they? In support of the Celtic League theory, the Welsh also rebelled. Now, Ed may have been drunk or possibly high, but he took a punt and he asked the Welsh to take him as their prince. 
I mean, how could they refuse a man with his track record for population control? Awkwardly, they decided he was not for them, but he couldn't dwell on this light, as he had to contend with issues in his actual kingdom anyway. Famine. Famine was engulfing not just Ireland but Europe, which made feeding the army increasingly difficult, and thus making it even harder to explain why he was burning everything in sight. He headed back to Carrickfergus, his headquarters for the length of the campaign, where he apparently got slightly upset at being unable to take a residence in the third floor castle room with a view that he had so desired. This was due to the obstinance of the Anglo-Irish defenders that had remained steadfast inside. They had even pulled a neat trick in the Scots procedures. Declaring that they kind of wanted to chat about the situation, they got the Scots to send a 30-man delegation to the gates to discuss this compromise. Now, while they were inking their quills, the 30-man delegation was swiftly kidnapped and shackled inside the dungeons. But, fear not, they weren't incarcerated for long, as, one by one, they were devoured by the castle's famished inhabitants. Muscle by muscle, sinew by sinew, organ by organ. Eventually, though, the smell of rotten carcass and unwashed human must have overwhelmed even the most stoic of castle defender. As a month or two later, Ed capitulated, and Ed could finally get his penthouse suite. Obviously, once the cleaners had been in, giving it a quick month's overlook. One of his first visitors was none other than Big Bro, old Bobby the Bruce, who swept into town with reinforcements and renewed vigour. Robert had left Ireland temporarily and visited him in Scotland, possibly to reassure him as to the legitimacy of his plan. Even though to many an outsider, it seemed as if the Scots were just kind of ambling about, whacking off heads and burning crops, you know, kicking off like it was Saturday night in Sucky Hill Street. Many say that Robert didn't overly care, that he just wanted Ed out of the way, as he had no living children and a brother-slash-successor looking over his shoulder was a threat. But if this was the case, you know, he showed no fear for himself, as upon landing in Carrickfergus, you know, the two men joined hands and went straight for the jugular of Ireland, or, well, just to the left of it. They smashed into Castle Knock, which is a town within touching distance of Ballyaclaf, or Dublin. The capture of Carrickfergus had, had given them great gusto, but, but little else. You would have not had the dramatic effect that they were looking for. They needed control of Ireland's economy, and to do this, they needed to take Dublin. So it makes little sense they didn't even try. The citizens of the city demolished much of the uh, of the outer structures and created barricades and obstructions. And no one how hard it had been to take Carrickfergus. The Bruce's just wheeled on by and headed west across the Shannon and into Limerick, looting and pillaging the whole way. They were there to hook up with with the clan O'Brien descendants of old Brian Brew himself. Rebellious sentiment had been um, burying there, and the Bruce's wanted in in the action. They were met by Clan Tig, who had bested their O'Brien brothers and quashed any notions of sedition. They attacked the Bruce's, and the Bruce's were already playing chases with an Anglo-Irish army that had been haranguing them since they left Dublin. When they heard of a further English force landing in southern Cork, led by the previously defeated Roger Mortimer, they had no choice but to cut tail and run before they were enveloped. There were mild skirmishes on the way back north, but most who perished did so not from war, but from hunger and exhaustion. The Bruce's both made it back, back to Ulster. But the tide was turning, and many were no longer so convinced the Bruce was the man for them. This feeling wasn't helped, but the whole Europe being gripped by the worst weather for generations, and famine was rife. I mean, many speculate that the early 14th century was just a really shitty time to be alive, possibly the shittest ever. You know, certainly top three, especially if you're poor. The annals of Connacht state, for in this Bruce's time, for three years and a half, falsehood and famine and homicide filled the country. 
and undoubtedly men ate each other in Ireland. Jeez. Now, I don't think it was really living people. I mean, they might have killed them and then ate them. But I don't think they had people alive. But there's numerous reports of people like digging up buried corpses and gnawing at the kind of remnants of flesh. You know, such was the scarcity of any sustenance. You just had to try and keep going. But at least you had religion. You had to warm your heart at night. The promise of a warm bed in the afterlife must have kept hope in the hearts of many. Well, that is, until the British forces ride into the town, kill everyone, take their food, steal your kids. I mean, it was desperation in their part, but that hardly legitimises mass murder. I mean, there's you putting in a shift, you know, the same stinking shift every day, tilling those barren lands, you know, meagre reward for massive efforts, then as you're limping home, late at night, caked in mud, two rotten turnips in your hands, feeling like the cat that got the cream, and an axe penetrates the back of your head and cleaves your skull in half. Hardly the act or order of a man who's his finger in a pulse of society, is it? I mean, it sort of paints him as a little bit clueless, you know, when it comes to getting the locals on his side. Now, I know there wasn't any Facebook or mobile phones back then, but believe it or not, people were still able to converse anyway. They were still able to talk to each other. And I'm sure most of them would have said at least once, See that new king? He's been a cunt, isn't he? Now, there isn't a whole lot of info for what happened over the next year or so. I mean, it seemed like people just had the option of hide or die. There's even reports of chroniclers writing in their books that maybe their last day alive. And it was kind of prophetic. It's usually that was on the last day before they died. The one thing we do see is that the Pope had weighed in and all this. He was not concerned that the Irish were being treated like vermin by the English. I mean, not at all. If anything, he sided with the English. He threatens the Bruce's with excommunication if they don't stop the Bruce invasion. But in a document called The Remonstrance of the Irish Princes in 1317, it's claimed that Don O'Neill, the supposed author, had support of the Irish bishops. It was sent to the Pope beseeching him to take the Irish side against the English, for they had only been granted the right to invade the island with the remit of enforcing the Gregorian reforms on the semi-autonomous Christian church in Ireland. And of that, they had failed. They'd said that Bruce had a big hand in the composition. And that is because it's very similar to another document he wrote. Very similar in sentiment to the Declaration of Our Broth of 1320, which is Scotland announcing its independence from its southern overlords. I'm going to read you a little bit here. A little bit I think is really cool. For as long as but a hundred of us remain alive, Never will we on any conditions be brought under English rule. It is in truth, not for glory, nor riches, nor honours that we are fighting, but for freedom. For that alone, which no honest man gives up, but with life itself. That's class, isn't it? Typifies how we'd ideally all like to be in it. You know, all romanticism and glory, but with little practical application. Certainly in the affluent Western world, where many of us just want to live and love and not really have such grandiose quest for honour. Now we seem to hear more again around the last sort of third of 1318, and things were looking up. You know, there was finally a decent harvest, people got stopped eating the dead, which I'm sure most of us agree is a good thing. There were even talks of reinforcements coming to Carrickfergus, but Ed departed before they had arrived. His Irish forces were strong, but many of his veterans had been caught victims of the harsh famine. He would still diminish the numbers as he may have been. He decided not to wait for his brother's men and he took his army south and left Ulster. But why? It made little tactical sense, if any. Was he heading to take Dublin? Was he leading a vanguard? Was he just being a prick, leaving to seek his defining moment, his Bannockburn, his glory? That seems to be the common opinion, and it does play into the hands of him wanting to shrug off, you know, like his brother's shadow. He wanted to show that he could do it in his own, be his own man, and enjoy the prestige that comes with that independent success. Basically, he just wanted his Marky Mark moment. 
But wanting something just isn't enough. You need to have a bit of talent. And Ed's generalship had been called into question numerous times in the campaign. From his seemingly random and uninspired patterns of movement to his lack of understanding, compassion even, to the people that had declared were under his sovereignty. Thus, his final decision as a general would be kind of consistent with the standard he had set thus far. Despite his Irish allies counselling caution, saying his plan was madness, was folly, he shrugged off their concerns with words of his own, possibly his final words. Let whoever want to help, help, but be rest assured that I will fight. Well, he didn't really fight that long, as he was soon slain at the Battle of Foggart, where his body still lies, sort of. It was quartered and dispatched to the four corners of Ireland, where they would maybe just, you know, spike a limb into the ground, but it was kind of lucky the harvest had sort of been good, or else that limb would be chowed down. The head was carried by a guy called Sir John Birmingham to the English king. And you have to wonder what condition it would have been in. I mean, how long does it take to get there? I don't know, a couple of weeks? I mean, you can't exactly pop it in the fridge, put it in nice. So it must have been all decayed and maggoty. But nevertheless, he received the earldom of Louth for his troubles. But it doesn't really leave much to reside at the grave, does it? God knows what's under there. Now, a chronicler of the Annals of Ulster expresses these paraphrased words. Edward de Bruce, the destroyer of Ireland in general, both Gauls and Gales was killed. And it was not done from the beginning of the world a deed that was better for the men of Ireland than that. Doesn't really hold back, does he? Doesn't really give the Bruce much respect. But what of the remaining Scots? Well, those belligerent warriors, you know, they fought their way back to Carrickfergus, you know, and then crossed their homeland, no doubt were glad to see the back of Ireland. As for the country left behind, what of it? What had three and a half years under the rule of a tyrant done for it? Well, upon his death, he left behind a mess of a country. Poverty starvation, Gaelic tribes warring amongst themselves and being suppressed by their overlords from across the water. So business as usual, I suppose. And strangely, despite the heinous acts perpetrated under Ed's brief and inglorious reign, he would largely be forgotten. Not just by much of history, but by many of his contemporaries, as within a decade or two there would be another new invader, one much harder to defeat than the Bruce, and one much more vicious. Yersina Pestis, better known as the Black Death, a plague that would claim the lives of around 30% of Irish inhabitants and over 200 million people throughout Europe and Asia. Okay, so we've got a few extras here, right? Firstly, we'll have to note that Joan Barber, the poet who wrote to Bruce, where we get much of our information, was commissioned by the grandson of Robert and was probably happy enough to sacrifice the reputation of his kind of ancestral uncle to boost the popularity of his grandfather. Much as the O'Briens had done for Brian Baru, but that may be me just looking for kind of balance and he probably deserved his reputation as a bit of a bungling butcher. Also, there are a few that have issues with Mel Gibson's film Braveheart, which I have to say I love, but the name is a little misleading. Robert de Bruce, who lived to see England recognise Scotland as an independent country in its own right, was the actual originator of the name Braveheart. One of his most loyal knights, nicknamed Black Douglas, was asked by Robert that upon his death to carry his heart to the Holy Lands, you know, of Jerusalem, that is not the Holy Lands in Belfast, because if he just went there he'd find students with hurdy sticks and country accents, but to Jerusalem in the Middle East. He carried it in a box around his neck, which just sounds delightful, doesn't it? But on the way there, he hooked up with King Alfonso of Spain, and he had a few drinks and decided it would be best to help him run some Saracen deadbeats out of town. Now, somewhat predictably, he got killed in the process, but before he died, he launched the heart of the Bruce into the kind of foray, 
and declared that he would follow him into death as he had done in life, which he duly did. Both his and the Bruce's heart were returned to Scotland and buried in Melrose, under the instructions of David II, who was the Bruce's son. It kind of just totally dismissed his dad's dying burial wishes, which is a bit shitty, isn't it? I mean, someone else is just a little bit shitty for you, and it concerns Edward II. He was deposed by uh, his queen, Isabella, and her lover, who was not Mel Gibson, as per the film, but that pesky rogue Roger Mortimer, who fought the Bruce many times, not just in Ireland, but also in Scotland. Well, they got Edward to abdicate in favour of his son, imaginatively titled Edward III. And I'm not sure if the new 13-year-old king consented to the next part, but his father, who had been imprisoned, starved, and wildly mistreated, was to meet a really grisly end. He was supposedly held down on his chest, a horn shoved up his ass, so as to make room for a red-hot poker to follow. As you can imagine, that kind of singed his anus a little bit, but it also actually burnt out his internal organs. <sighs> I think I'd prefer the Black Death. And yet, if you're wondering, it was a struggle not to do a rectum joke there. Anyway, that's us. And just to tell you that episode 10 is the special. If I can get those tardy bastard mates of mine to actually spring into action, you know, actually do something. But before I try to do that, I'll quickly introduce uh, the tune that'll play us out. When I lived in Scotland, there were two big numbers you'd hear all the time. I'm going to be by the Proclaimers, which many know better is 500 miles. And it was played at some point every night in the bars before turf for night time. And then the second one is the Flower of Scotland. It's a, it's a tune that evokes images of the Tartan Army. You know, St Andrews, cross daubed in their faces, wrapped in their yellow royal banners, you know, beating their chests and getting all raucous, fueled by tenants and granny shortbread. And like any good anthem, it's got a few parts where, you know, the crowd add their own additional lyrics. So see if you can hear that. But when it's playing, if the hairs don't rise in the back of your neck, then maybe, just like Ed, you're actually TD bred yourself. Enjoy. Literally.